May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. My mother tells a story of me when I was just a little baby, I guess about 12 months old, she says. And I was sitting on the floor, playing with a toy, pacifier in my mouth, and she was just sitting on the couch watching me. I'm sure it was a day of great glory for her as she watched me. And anyway, she sat there and was watching me and, and undoubtedly captivated by my charm. And, uh, and she says, I, I dropped the toy that was in my hand and, and I grabbed hold of the pacifier and I pulled it out of my mouth and, and I looked at it for a bit and I stuck it back in there and you know, sucked on it a little harder. And she says, and then I pulled it back out and, and looked at it, kind of curious. And she just sat there and watched me. She says, I did this about three or four more times and suddenly I pull it out of my mouth and I threw it as far as I could probably throw it. And she said, I never picked it up again after that. She said the best that she could surmise, I, I discovered somewhere along the line that the pacifier really didn't satisfy. And so I threw it away. I liked hearing this story. I liked hearing it for a long time for a lot of reasons. I loved hearing it, especially after I had children, because they took more than 12 or 14 months for them to pass that th- throw that thing away. And so... You know that kind of father-son competition that starts early? Oh, I was so all over them. I can't wait for you to grow up and me tell you about this. I also was thrilled from the story because it kind of fed the myth that I had going on in my mind. Uh, Namely, that I was self-sufficient. And I didn't really bear fools easily. and, And I didn't need things that didn't satisfy. But it's not the truth. And the truth is I'm selfish and and self-centered and want things that please me. And if my mother had given me a raspberry-flavored binky, I probably would still have it in my mouth today, you know, that, uh, that it was just that it didn't give me what I wanted. And so I threw it away in favor, or at least in pursuit of something altogether different and better. My only consolation in my self-loathing today and throwing that all out before you is that I know that all of you are exactly the same, and that you, like me, are always in the pursuit of the next thing that will satisfy, the next thing that will bring just a little bit more. we, We throw away our pacifiers, not because we don't need them anymore, but because we want a more sophisticated version of them, don't we? Um, I, I noticed that as I, as I grow older, that, um, that I want things that pacify that internal anxiety. That's what children want too. They want comfort for the internal anxiety, that restlessness of the soul. They want something that's small. And the thing is, they can be easily pacified for a while, but soon it'll take more and more and more. And so what are the pacifiers of adults? Well, you know what they are, right? A warm blanket or soothing music. A cup of tea or a cheery fire. Those are good places to start, aren't they? Things that kind of calm the storm outside or within by little things without. But as the storms of life get more and more fierce, we turn to more powerful toxic toxins to uh, alleviate this soul. We, we, we look to food or alcohol or, or things. We, we, we try relationships or new trips to the mall and another trip to the mall and another trip. And, and it's something that will just pacify, that will alleviate this storm. We discard one pacifier for the next. I have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic, and he's in AA. And, and uh, one time he invited me over to his house, and we hung out with some friends. And, and all of his friends were, were from AA as well. And, and they said, you should come to a meeting sometime. 
And I said, oh, that'd be delightful. I'd love to go to a meeting. And, and so I went. And, and, you know, it was amazing, this refreshing sense of honesty and transparency. You know, I found something there that sometimes I hadn't even seen in church. This honesty before one another and before God. And so I became deeper friends with these fellows. And, and one of them says to me, I think it may be Rick, my friend, he says, hey, let's start a Bible study at my house. And I said, oh, that sounds like a delightful idea. He said, yeah, you'll lead it. I'm going to invite some friends over. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. And so I go to his house and, and invite all these friends over from, from his uh, AA meetings. And they're all sitting around. And, and I said to him before, I said, you know, Rick, we should probably... We should probably have a starting and an ending point for this so that, so that it just doesn't go on and on and on. And they feel like they can, they can jump out if they want to. He says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So we meet for the first time and I tell these people, look, we're going to do Mark's gospel. It's 16 chapters. We'll try to do three a week. Five or six weeks we'll be done with this altogether. And they said, oh, that's great. That's great. And a year later when we finished, it was, um, it was like we had just skimmed the surface of Mark's gospel. These men were, and women, they, they were just wonderful people that I, I, I grew to love deeply and appreciate. And uh, one of the things I noticed about them was I noticed that, that they, um, they drank a lot of coffee and they smoked a lot of cigarettes. And usually I was leading the Bible study just kind of below the cloud, you know. I kind of had to lean down low and, and we could all see and, and I would have to leave and take a shower. And my wife would say, were you at a bar? Tell me the truth. And, no, no, really. We were, we were at a Bible study. You don't smell like you were at a Bible study. And I said to Rick one time, I said, you know, I noticed that you all drink a lot of coffee and smoke a lot of cigarettes. And he said, yeah, he said, um, a lot of us turn in our more harmful vices for less harmful ones. And I wondered if they could see that in me, too, that I turned in my more harmful vices for less harmful ones. Probably not, because I had a better job concealing mine. In the gospel lesson I read to you, Jesus goes out into the wilderness Normally this is a Sunday where, uh, where I look at the temptations and look closely at them and, and talk about what temptation is in our lives. Um, you know, the f- temptations Jesus faces. He faces uh, turning stones into bread, plenty to eat. You know, power and control over dominions of the earth. Protection, this, this temptation for security. And, and I think we learn a lot about the tempter in these stories. We learn that the devil is a masterful quoter of Scripture. He seems to know more Bible than some Sunday school teachers, doesn't he? Whips it out here and there. We learn that he's crafty, although we shouldn't be so surprised to learn that. We also learn that he tempts the Son of God. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find out that we're tempted. I mean, after all, we're no Son of God, are we? We're not the second person of the Trinity. We also learn that victory is found through the power of the Word. Quote the Scripture back to him and you'll find power over these temptations. And whilst those are kind of good areas to look, today I want to look at something a little different. Not the what of the temptation, but the where. The temptation occurs in the wilderness. And the wilderness is sort of a strange place in in Jewish thinking. It's kind of a paradoxical place. It's a place where you go to find God, but it's also a place where you just as might well run into the evil one. In Mark's Gospel, there's only three sentences in this entire narrative. Sentence one, the Spirit forces Jesus into the wilderness. Sentence two, Jesus faces temptation. Sentence three, while with the beasts, the angels minister to him. 
There you have it. In the, in the wilderness, God and the devil. You never know what you're going to find when you go into the wilderness. You never know what's going to be around the next corner. All that you know in the wilderness is that you're all alone. You're all alone. And in this lonely time in the wilderness, you start to discover who you really are. You start to discover who you really are by the temptations that are placed before you. Lent is a sort of wilderness experience, isn't it? It's this time where we kind of throw off things and give up things. For a long time, I didn't even observe Lent. Even after I became a Christian, I didn't observe it at all. And when I started to observe it, I didn't do a very good job of it. I don't know that I still do a very good job of it because inwardly I crave the things that I try to fast. And I want to know, you know, not just to not have them, but not to want them. I think in the wilderness we also discover that we're not really alone. El Diablo is there, isn't he? He's there to offer us all kinds of things. You'll be better if only you have a chocolate or a steak or a bourbon. These will all make you feel better. You'll, you'll, you'll be so much happier. Only it won't. And so we give up our sweets and our parties and we skip a meal here or there. And we fast, hoping to find something better. You know, Lent is also a word for spring, which is really another paradox in the whole uh, scenario of Lent. Because Lent is very unspring-like. I mean, first of all, there's a foot of snow out there, right? So, I mean, where's the spring here? But beyond that, beyond the fact that there's, there's snow on the ground and cold weather in the forecast, when we think of spring, it's, it's light and airy and cheery and, and, and not like Lent, which is heavy and sometimes dreadful. But what if we didn't think of Lent like a punishment, but instead like a nourishment? What if Lent wasn't punishment and fasting wasn't a, a penalty upon us, but what if it was like, I hate to use this metaphor, but for lack of a better one, what if it was like fertilizer for the soul? Doesn't smell too good, not too pleasant, but oh, Oh, the buds of life that come in the spring. Jesus went into the wilderness. I don't think he went out there to face down the devil, deal with the temptations. I think Jesus goes to the wilderness because he wants to show us the way to God. And he bids us to follow. Come into the wilderness with me. Lay aside all these other things. Lay aside all these things that are, that are really attempts just to pacify you. And instead, journey with me into the wilderness. Thanks be to God. He plowed the way ahead for us, didn't He? And many travelers have gone on so that we're not left to, to, to make a new road. We follow a well-worn path. But along the path through the wilderness, we discover El Diablo hanging out in the wilderness. We discover who we really are. But I think we also discover the one that our soul really seeks. And in him we find real satisfaction. We find a real tonic for the ache of our soul. And it makes all the difference. Amen.